Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Today's guest became the chief executive officer of two property insurance companies in 2012. These companies collectively insure $110 billion in property exposures for 450,000 policyholders and are recognized as leaders in promoting resilient construction. She is working with NC State University, Cornell, UCLA, and the University of Delaware to conduct research on mitigation resilience and the impact of fortified construction to prevent property damage. This year, they will administer a $28 million grant program to encourage fortified roof construction in coastal communities. Why, you may ask? Because wind is the greatest damage creator in our North Carolina coast. Insurance Business American named her as one of the elite women in the insurance industry, and the Independent Insurance Agents of North Carolina named her Company Professional of the Year. In 2022, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper awarded the Order of the Long Leaf Pine to her. This is the highest honor awarded to recognize persons who have made significant contributions to the state of North Carolina through exemplary service and exceptional accomplishments. She made formal presentations at the White House, Insurance Link Security, National Council of Insurance Legislators, and International Information Technology Conferences. She was featured in Insurance Business America for breaking the glass ceiling in the insurance industry. She's a chartered property and casualty underwriter, certified insurance counselor, and certified risk manager. She serves as the chair for a national board of directors of property insurance companies and as member of the Risk Management Advisory Board of East Carolina University, Business School Board of Advisors for Meredith College, and Diversity and Inclusion Committee, and Board of Advisors for Brantley Risk Insurance Center at Appalachian State University. She lives right here in Raleigh, North Carolina, doing hot yoga, watching her son play baseball, and riding her bike. And and I don't mean a short ride of the bike to the mailbox like what I do. No, she participates in these 100 mile rides to raise money to support the goal of a world free of MS. Please welcome Chief Executive Officer of the North Carolina Joint Underwriters Association and the North Carolina Insurance Underwriters Association, Ms. Gina Hardy. Hi, Gina. Hi, Dr. Gary. I am so thrilled to be here with you today. I have such admiration for your mission to make better leaders and better bosses, because it really makes a huge difference in the lives of employees and in the lives of their families. Well, thank you. And I want to jump into this because one of the things that really struck me as I've talked to you and learned more about what you do is is two things, prevention and resilience and and your commitment to service. But, But the prevention and resilience keeps coming up as a theme that I hear when you are interviewed by the press or talking to me about this. And, you know, I never thought about this, but this idea of 
you know, preventive construction, you know, resilient construction. I quite frankly, I'm not in your business, didn't think of it, but of course it makes sense. How did, how did you come up with, I mean, you've had a long history in insurance and I think you, I think I read in your bio, you started in insurance, uh, working part-time for your dad. I did. I did. In my dad's insurance agency when I was um, 13. So, and I went to Emory University thinking that I was going to do something different. I majored in sociology and then I got a job at the Georgia legislature and I was working with the House Committee on Insurance. And from there, I ended up going into into the insurance industry and it's been a, a wonderful career. I was in the private market for 25 years prior to assuming the role of CEO. And the two companies that I'm CEO, that I serve as CEO for, they are nonprofits and they were created by the General Assembly in the 1960s. And the reason they were created, if you'll remember in the 1960s, there was a lot of unrest. And with the unrest, there became a crisis for availability of insurance. And in order to have economic development, you have to have insurance to support that economic development. But there was also a crisis of availability at our coast. And in order to have a coast that could grow and prosper, again, you needed insurance. So these organizations were formed. There's two, there's been two CEOs before me. Each of those individuals served 20 years. And I am now starting my 11th year in this role. So it's been a truly an honor and a pleasure to serve the citizens of North Carolina because as you can imagine, our organization ensures almost 60% of the Outer Banks and Barrier Islands for wind and 40% of the coastal communities for wind. So we are definitely on the front line when a hurricane is heading towards North Carolina and with a lot of policyholders. Yeah. And a lot of people may not know that, you know, it, it's pretty obvious, I think, but maybe people don't think about this not being part of it is insurance is all about managing risk. Absolutely. Right. To be able to make a profit for the bottom line while you're managing the risk. Right. And there's in, in a lot of these certain areas have higher risk than others. There's nothing probably more risky than insuring the, the coast of any place. And I can remember uh, hearing about this, you hear about this after hurricanes go through where insurance companies start to reduce the number of policies that they will write because they can't afford to write policies for the, the uh, coastal communities. So you fill that gap. We do. We're a nonprofit that fills the gap. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, you know, homeowners can't get, can't get insurance. But that's all really interesting. But I, I don't care about that because here's the thing. Okay. Here's the thing. What did you do with your first three paychecks that you got? My first three paychecks from my dad. Um, my grandmother was on a fixed income and she wanted a Polaroid camera. And so I saved all of my money for my first three paychecks to get her the Polaroid camera. And I will never forget the excitement in her face when she got the Polaroid camera. And the one thing, you know, with my dad having an insurance agency, the greatest rebellion of my life was actually to go to college because he wanted me to go into the insurance agency. So mm -hmm. I applied to Emory and I got into Emory and my dad's like, I'm not financing it because I think you need to stay here and work in my insurance agency. And I said, well, you know, I'll work full time and I'll go to school full time because I really want a degree. 
And so I went and I got a degree from Emory University and it was a wonderful experience. And ironically, we I end up back in back in insurance. So it's um, it's been a I, I went away, but I'm glad that I got a degree in sociology because when you look at sociology, you look at how groups interact together and how groups can be productive together and the strength of groups. And as a chief executive officer, I look at groups and are the groups working well together? How can we, you know, help groups to work better as a team and be stronger as a team? And I think those are the kinds of things that, you know, having that kind of unusual background as an undergraduate student. And I will say something else that, you know, your your life becomes full circle. So Emory's a big pre-med school and I decided that I was not going to go pre-med. So I decided to take science classes that were not in the pre-med field because if you're not totally committed to pre-med at Emory, you're going to fail biology and chemistry. So I took oceanography and meteorology. Mm. Both oceanography and meteorology are extremely helpful in my career now as I watch hurricanes march across the ocean waters. Who would have guessed, right? You Who would know, have you, guessed that those you took two, those You took those to not take the other courses, but now they serve you today, right? I right. did. But listen, the reason I brought the whole thing about buying your grandmother the, uh, the camera is because we demonstrate our values through action. That's true. And, and what you did very early on is very, very unique. There aren't very many people that would have taken their paychecks and their first three paychecks and bought their grandmother, or bought somebody else something just to see the look on their face because you knew that they needed it and you were trying to do some service. And you have kept that service value all the way through your career as a CEO today. The things that you do, not just for your, your stakeholders and your clients and all that, but for your people within the organization and servicing as a leader. And I, I always talk about this as the, the difference in a servant leadership and service leadership. And I make the point uh, in some of my podcasts that we're not servant leaders because servants do things for people that they don't really need them to do. But service is doing for others what they need help with. And, you know, when you think about the whole concept of what you do in insurance, you're doing something for, for people they can't do for themselves. It's the, everything that you do is about service. And I think it's really leading a culture that also understands that. And I was so proud of our staff in 2018 when we as a state experienced Hurricane Florence and Hurricane Florence came into our state and it pounded our state for days and days and days. And it dropped over eight trillion gallons of water. And in that circumstance, we had one out of every four of our policyholders had losses. Mm. And our organization needed to scale. We needed to bring in lots of individuals to help us. But also our staff had to work extremely long hours. And the insurance commissioner of the state called me um, the night after Hurricane Florence hit. And he goes, Gina, he goes, how can I help you? And I had a real ask because I think when somebody asks you if they can help you, you should, you know, see if there's anything that they can lean in and help you with. And I said, what would help me the most is if you could come this weekend and talk to our staff 
about the role that they play in the state and how important it is because they are going to be working extremely long hours, seven days a week. They're going to be away from their families. And how can you help them to understand how important it is because they are helping to restore lives? Because when your home is damaged and you can't live in your home and trying to get money out quickly so they can hire contractors so they can get their lives restored. It's extremely important. Mm. And out of that, one of my employees came up with a, a statement saying it's a mission, not a position. And I believe that and all of our staff believed it. And then what I tried to do as the chief executive officer was how can I support my employees that I'm now asking to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And so some of the things that we did for them is we ended up providing meals so they would not have to think about meals. The schools were out. So if I wanted, you know, parents to be able to work, we needed to provide daycare services for their kids. And mm -hmm. so we needed to lean in. And then when Commissioner Causey came out, he talked about the value of getting our coastal communities restored quickly. And, you know, it is a privilege to get the opportunity to serve those individuals that can't obtain insurance from the private market. And so I think having that servant's heart and having the staff have that servant's heart is extremely important. And, you know, a lot of the work that we do on leadership, we talk about leadership as an inside out journey. You know, we have to work on ourselves to work on others to be able to provide service. And in, in what you're talking about, it's the same thing because you, you have this, this responsibility as a service provider, as this insurance service provider to take care of all these people through this hurricane. And, and sometimes, sometimes leaders will just say, you know, it's going to be tough, you know, suck it up. We got to work hard and so on. But they don't think about the impact on those people like you did that thinks about food, daycare, sleep, you know, any, anything like that that says, look, we're going to be working hard. We're going to be, you know, really struggling here for a while, but we're all in this together. So how do we take away some of the personal stress? Because as, as we've seen in studies, 85% of all problems at work are because of things outside of work. So if you didn't take care of some of that stuff and have that that understanding of an outward mindset that we talk about, which started with your grandmother, all right? You saw what she wanted. You could see it. If, oh, man, if I could just do this for my grandmother, you're seeing that opportunity to provide service and, and give her some joy. And what you saw with your employees is an opportunity to let them know, look, I've got your back. I care about you. We're going to take care of daycare centers. We're going to take care of your kids. We're going to take care of food. I mean, basic stuff. But a lot of companies miss that, don't you think? You know, I think that if companies you want your employees to take care of your customers, you have to lean in and take care of your employees. Your employees need to know that they matter and that you see them. And I think that's what uh, that's what you're seeing in the Great Resignation is you're seeing companies lose employees because somehow we failed to see them and we failed to see their needs. And are there times where, you know, before COVID, we were in the office five days a week, but I have certainly had employees that I remember at another company and I was a manager and I had this employee that had breast cancer, but 
you know, if she would have went out on long-term disability, she was only going to get 60% of her pay. Mm -hmm. And she's like, Gina, I can work during the periods that I am not doing treatment. You know, a couple of days after I could work, work. So I went to my boss and I was explaining to him, you know, she wants to work for a variety of reasons. You know, she needs the, the income and she needs the distraction while she's going through this very big crisis in her life. And he goes, but I don't understand why, Gina. I said, think about it. She does not need to lose her home and her car during a period where she's already in health crisis. So, you know, let's let her work if she needs to work, you know, from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. because that's the hours that she feels good. We had work that she could do. We had productive work that she could do. She felt good. The company got the work done. We just needed to show some grace during a time in her life when she needed grace. And that employee will not forget that. I had another employee that came up to me and he was going to quit the organization because he needed to go out of the country to take care of his mother-in-law. And I was like, why can't you just go on sabbatical for a couple of months? You can use all of your vacation. And then when you have your family back and your mother-in-law is now better, then come back to us. And he did. And he's forever grateful. So I think that the capital that you gain and the loyalty that you gain by really taking the time to see your employees and understand the struggles that your employees are enduring. And then during COVID, you know, we went remote. And for us, it was fairly easy to go remote because we plan for major hurricanes. We plan for, you know, the whole building to be destroyed. So we always knew that we might have to work remote. So for us, it was, we closed down one day in the office and started working home the next day. So it wasn't problematic for us. But I was really concerned about the mental well-being of my staff. Mm -hmm. So we took all of our employees and we would divide the list of employees, not by the manager they reported to, and give managers a care call list. And the managers had to make the care calls. And basically what it was, was just a check in. How are you doing? How are you feeling? Is there anything that we can do for you? And it really did help to build um, loyalty, not only with the manager that they reported directly, but also with all the managers. And they got the opportunity to speak with all of the managers in the corporation over a period that we have been in, you know, COVID and working remote. That's a, that's a great example of how your leaders can demonstrate care. Because the leaders that look, you know, I could call you up and say, Gina, I'm, you know, I'm one of the leaders here. I don't, I don't really know what you, what your job is. I don't know what your exactly. plan is. I don't know. I just want to go, how are you doing? Yeah. Anything I can do for you. And you're like, it's not an accountability call. It's a care call. Right. And, and, and I, I, I love that. There's a couple of things that you're, I want to, I want to add one thing to this uh, when we talk about caring for employees, because it's part of this that I sometimes just, I don't freaking get, okay. I just don't get it. Here's the thing. There's a, there's a very broad-based meta study done many years ago about company mission statements. And one of the things that they found in this broad study was there was zero correlation between using the words, taking care of our customers and success. There was no correlation. 
but there was a direct correlation in success between taking care of our employees and their mission statement and success. And when I talk about leadership from the inside out, you know, it's first we take care of ourselves, then we take care of each other and employees, then we take care of our customers. It's inside out. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand why more leaders don't get this. You talk, it just, it, it just flows out of you. I mean, it's part of your pores to say, if somebody is, is distressed, they go, well, let's get creative with this. Let's get flexible. Let's get fluid. Let's change the schedule. Let's give them time off. Let's, you know, whatever it takes when you have a, an employee that matches your values, you want to do whatever you can to try to keep them. Worst cases, they don't come back. That's the worst case. Okay. That's not such a bad thing because you're not really, you're not providing uh, dollars without value coming back. You just ask, can we flex their schedule? Why don't more leaders do this? Why won't they be more flexible with this? I, I almost think that they're afraid that people are going to take advantage of them or something. And, and they're paranoid about that rather than building this kind of loyalty with employees like you're talking about by doing these little things. I don't, I don't get it. Can you help me with that as a sociologist? Can you, <laughs> what's the psychology of this? I don't get it. You know, my, my thought on it is sometimes you punish the majority as opposed to, so that, you know, you, you had, you had one employee 10 years ago, which took advantage of you, as opposed to looking at the vast majority of your employees are going to, you know, have a lot of loyalty to you because they know if, if you help X in a crisis, well, you know what, they're going to help me in a crisis. Cause I always say that all of us at some point will need to either Give grace or receive grace. It's just a matter of time that you're life. going to need, yeah, it's life. need somebody to lean in with you yeah. or you're going to need to lean in with someone else. And I think, you know, what you're seeing right now is you're seeing almost a rebellion of employees with a great resignation saying, I need you to see me. I need you to understand that I have a life, you know, beyond the office that I'm trying to to balance. And I recently um, got a top executive in our company and she said that, you know, one reason that she came to us is that she knew that we would offer her, you know, some flexibility when she needed it. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't, she's willing to work, you know, extraordinarily long hours, but she also knows that if she ever needs, you know, any type of flexibility, because she had um, three young kids during COVID at home. And wow. so she she was doing great. But every now and then, you know, there was a daycare closures and it was something that, you know, employers needed to be aware of that during COVID there was some daycare closures. So, you know, she might needed to do her work, you know, during, you know, alternate hours with her husband to get some of her work done. But everything got done beautifully. And the one thing I will say, because I think this is important, our organization has an extremely low expense ratio compared to peer organizations. Our expense ratio is phenomenal. So we're able to give great service, take care of our employees and still deliver extremely um, competitive expense structures, which is very important because we also have a responsibility to run our business so that, and, and we are, 
you know, the, the lowest expense structure of companies like ourselves in the country, which I'm very proud of. Well, and I would, I'm, I'm going to make a, a wild guess here, just a wild guess that the reason for that is your uh, engagement levels, according to Gallup, are not at 33 or 35%. And it's much higher. And, you know, the, the studies show that we have in this country, and it might be going down, but 30, 30 to 35% employees are engaged. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of people in the middle that are just kind of disengaged. And then you've got 17 to 20% that are actively disengaged, which means they're actually doing things that are counter to your mission and almost sabotaging the mission of the organization. When you have 60 or 70 or 80% of your organization engaged, th there's like 20% employees you don't need to hire. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> right? Because they're, they're doing the extra work. They're thinking for themselves. They're not bogging things down. So that's really great. I want, so one of the things um, you sent me an article out of the Triangle Business Journal from October. And, and one of the things that really struck me was a question that was asked to you. And one of those questions that you answered, the question is, what advice do you have for young women who want to advance in the world of business? And one of the answers you gave, and, and there's a lot of research around here that talks about this, is be willing to accept opportunities and assignments that allow you to work outside your traditional comfort zone. And one of the things research has found in business is men are much more willing to just kind of jump into the fray, take opportunities, uh, be risk takers, uh, much more than women. They tend to hold back and, and not do that. I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. And how do you get women to just jump into it and just believe in themselves? And are there organizations or mentor? You talk about having a mentor, which might help with make that jump, right? Talk about that a little bit, if you will, for for uh, maybe some of the women that listen to this, because I think that's a that's one of the things that's holding women back is not just jumping in and taking those opportunities. Would you agree with that? You know, I'm raising a 13 year old son right now, and I also raise my daughter's 24, hmm. and my son is always, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. Now, many times I have found that. He didn't have it. He didn't have and it. So yeah. I, I need to make sure that I talk him so that he fully thought through everything. Um, you know, for myself, I was very fortunate that I had a wonderful female boss and her name was Betsy Douglas. And I worked for her for 15 years and she would consistently give me assignments that I'm not sure that I would have given myself, that they certainly were out of my wheelhouse and things that I had not done before. But I will tell you, working for a smaller company, our company has about 200 employees, you're constantly um, being challenged to take on roles that you have not done before. So it really prepared me to be a CEO of this organization. And one uh, project that she nominated me for was something called Project Phoenix. And I think this CEO was brilliant in what they did. The stock price of this publicly traded insurance company that I was working for had tanked. It was very low. It was on the verge of going insolvent. The products were not good. The pricing was stressed. So every area of the company, when he took over CEO, needed to be re-engineered. So what he decided to do is he did not look at positions. He decided that he would form a team of 40 people. And then that team of 40 people, he would divide 
problems. He would give one group, how would you solve distribution? How would you solve product? How would you solve expectations of customers? And then he cross-pollinated. So he would put people that had not been, I was in charge of, I was on a team with distribution and he didn't put me with other people that were in the underwriting. He put me with a claims person, he put me with an IT person. But what he did was those 40 people in the company got to know each other. And so we then were engaged and helping. And then we also probably looked at things differently because we were from different disciplines. And I thought that looking back, that was so effective. The company's stock went up dramatically and it actually got sold maybe eight years later to a much bigger insurance company. But being part of the turnaround was inspirational. And I, at the time, was the youngest person that was part of the turnaround. So I certainly would not have nominated myself to be on this committee. But Betsy nominated me to be on the committee. And I went and I did the best job that I could that I could do. And, you know, I felt like I added some value to it in the end. And I learned a lot and I got a lot of great contacts from all over the company. So I think, you know, and I try to do that to my staff. I I see them in ways that they may not see themselves, both males and females. Yeah. Um, right now, my um, director of information technology, eight years ago, she was Zurich's top salesperson. She was not in technology. She is now a phenomenal chief of technology. She has great management skills and it's wonderful to see because I saw those skills in her and I don't know if she saw them in herself. And I will say that the reason I took this job was a gentleman that's on the coast of North Carolina, Fletcher Willie. I had a recruiter call me about this job and I talked to Fletcher and Fletcher goes, Gina, you would be great in this job. And he spent two hours on the phone with me convincing me to step forward, step out of my comfort zone and try something different. And it has been an extreme pleasure and honor to get to do this job. So I, I think one of the things that I've heard that's consistent with all of the, the the stories that you're telling is people outside of you are the ones that convinced you or gave you these opportunities. You just have to be willing to take them. Mm-hmm. And I think there's another step. And that is to, when you talk about the advice to young women, the very first bullet that was in the Triangle Business Journal uh, was develop mentors, male and female, of various ages, industries, and career stages. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's people see in us talents that we don't see in ourselves. I, I have to tell you, I, I was in the army and I was in manufacturing for ten years. And the whole time I was in manufacturing, I was told, "Gary, you really need to be in sales. You know, they've got technical sales. You can be in sales." And in my mind, I had the paradigm of the used car salesman. When I said sales, no, no, I don't, I'm not going to try to talk people into that. That's not me. That's not who I am. Yeah, until I started my first business. And the first thing I needed to do was sell. <laughs> you know? And I learned it through experience. And we can do these things with integrity. But if we have a, a paradigm that's negative, that's not, it's not truthful. It's not, it's just, it's the, it's the wrong sense of what we see then it can hold us back. If we have mentors that we trust, at the very least, we can go talk to those mentors and say, what do you think? Should I try this? If I had had the kind of mentors that you're recommending today, and I highly, I support it 100%, find some mentors, work with them, listen to them, and they'll tell you things you don't want to hear. 
mm-hmm. right? That's okay. It opens us up. Both younger and older. I was talking to someone the other day, Dr. Brenda Wells at ECU, and she says, I tell everyone over 50 that they need to have a mentor in their 20s. And I think that's wonderful because it really does. I would tell you, you know, my kids would probably tell you that they mentor me, the 24 year old and definitely the 13 year old, you know, at 13, you know, everything that there is to know in the world. Um, Well, and they see the world, you know, if I have a 28 year old mentor and I I use my sons for this, uh, both my sons are in business, one's an entrepreneur and one's working for a big company. They see the world differently. They do. Right. Your daughter sees the world differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I love right now that we have started redefining. We have started talking about authenticity and we have started talking about bringing your authentic self to work. And I think all of those are wonderful trends that we're seeing. And I think the more flexibility, I was very fortunate in that I had a wonderful boss that, you know, what flexibility I needed. My grandmother kept my daughter when she was young, but my grandmother couldn't drive. And so I needed to pick up my daughter from school at three o'clock and drive her to my grandmother's house. So I needed to take my lunch at three o'clock, not at 12, but at three. And it was an easy you know, accommodation. And my boss gave it to me. But I wonder how many bosses would have said, oh, no, you've got to take your lunch between 11 and one. Right. But as a result, I, you know, it didn't matter. I could work later in the evenings because my grandmother had my daughter. I wasn't, I didn't need to get off exactly at five o'clock, but I just needed to get my daughter from her school over to my grandmother's house. And that was an accommodation I needed. So I think, you know, what's happened in the last two years is that we've become more aware and we're seeing what accommodations that employees need. And I guess, I probably would have been more willing to make accommodations because, you know, I I do believe that you should not have to choose between being a good parent and a good employee. At the end of the day, I want to know that I had a phenomenal career, but I also was as successful to my kids that I didn't lose that. And I think, you know, having more businesses that are more aware of that is extraordinarily important. And those are the ones that are winning the talent battle, because right now, Talent is everything and who you choose to work for and what culture you choose to work in. I see that in the 20 somethings that I have relationships with and that they are talking about choosing jobs. You know, I will not work for company X, Y and Z, even though company X is willing to pay me more. And I think we didn't necessarily see that. Um, you know, that strong shift towards culture, even 10 years ago or five years ago? Well, I can tell you that I've seen it <laughs> and been preaching it for decades. Everybody just needs to listen to it. It's you, just, you're, but you're now they're, they're starting to listen because I, I actually had a project manager tell me, uh, he, he works in a construction company. He told me, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And they asked me to work this weekend. And I said, well, what did you tell him? He said, no, I'm not working on the weekend. And I said, what did your boss do? He said, my boss didn't know what to do. I'm like, you know, this is the part that's really interesting. It's like, look, if you're going to fire me, fire me, but I don't care. I'm I'm not going to put my life aside for this business. I have a life, like you said, a balance between parenting and its career or whether it's just a personal life, whatever it might be. And the the employees, the younger, they're they're taking a stand. And I keep telling people when I look at this, they you know, they want to have a life, they want to have a mission, they want to do. And why do why do older people think they're wrong? 
they're absolutely right. It's, it, it, you know, uh, I had another podcast uh, guest that said the following, just because we normalize it doesn't make it right. You know, and so I, it's a new normal. And I think if they believe in the mission that they will work the extra hours. Yes. I had during Florence, when we are there trying to restore the lives of people at the coast, and I'm asking my employees to work seven days a week, 12 hours a day. They all did it. Yeah. Nobody complained about it. They all worked together because they understood why. And as soon as I could start reducing hours, I did. Yeah, but that's and the thing, Gina, that what you just said right there, they knew that you would pay them back later on, that you would reduce hours, you would take care of them and probably gave them long weekends, gave them, you know, extra time off because they're doing all this extra. They knew that with you because they knew, they knew your heart. And and it was a wonderful story. We actually settled 90% of our claims within 60 days. And wow. that's amazing. And when all said and done three years later, we only had 37 that went to any type of litigation. Wow. And so that's an incredible um, number and very low number so that we did have extraordinary success and was able to restore lots of lives during that event. So I want to, I want to wrap it up today with my, my favorite question that I ask everybody at the end of the podcast. And I know you've listened to some of my podcasts so you've heard the question and you've, you've given this, you know, advice to young women and how to advance in the business world and all that stuff. But I'd like you to give some advice to Gina. If you were to write a letter to Gina and write it and send it back to you 25 years ago, what would you have told yourself? You know, I actually have a quote that I would have told myself. Um, it says, do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Mm -hmm. And I think having the courage to go off the path and create your own path is very critical that it's it's okay. And when I was 24, I actually had a really wonderful boss and I had um, another opportunity with another insurance carrier and I was struggling whether to stay at the carrier with where Jeff Hanowitz was or to go to another carrier. And he took me in his office and I was 24 and he knew I was struggling with this decision. He goes, you can't make a career mistake at 20 between these two choices. Two years later, I came back to work for him. And I worked for him for 12 years after that because he gave me the freedom to go and to try something different. And I've done that to my staff too. I've had staff that have left me and went to other organizations and then have come back. And I don't see that as being disloyal. I see it that at that time, they needed to go do something else. And then if they're ready then to return to our organization, they come back with richer experiences. And we are very fortunate to be able to, to bring them back in because they understand the culture and they are making a very conscious decision to come back into the culture that we, that we have at our organization. Yeah, that's great. Create your own path. I, I have to tell you a personal story that resonates with that. My dad who was in the military for 24 years and then worked for Yale University for another 20 and then retired, he told me about my business. He said, I don't understand what you do. I don't understand how you do what you do and how people pay you to do what you do. And I said, well, I, I develop leaders. And he goes, yeah, I know that, but I, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. And he said this for years. 
And one of the last conversations I had with him before we passed, I was talking to him and I said, you know, dad, I just, I was just on a different path. And he said, no, you weren't. You created your own path. And that's why I'm so proud of you. That's cool. You know, so I think we'll finish our podcast today with that thought to create your own path. Thank you so much, Gina Hardy, for being our guest today. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the opportunity. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thanks for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Be good, be great, and be well. Take care. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit petercats.com. <laughs>